Our scripture lesson on this first Sunday after Christmas is taken from the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke, verses 41 through 52. Now every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up as usual for the festival. When the festival was ended and they started to return, The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. But he said to them, Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years, and in divine and human favor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Come Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, come kindle the flame of sacred love in these post-Christmas hearts of ours. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Most of us who attend church regularly understand that there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, through which we get most of our information about Jesus Christ. Among these four, only Matthew and Luke convey the stories of Jesus' birth that we have celebrated this week, and only Luke provides a glimpse of Jesus' childhood through the story that we have just read of Jesus being lost in the temple at age 12. But this doesn't mean that there weren't other stories of Jesus' childhood floating around in the culture of his day. In fact, some of these stories made their way into Gospels that did not eventually make their way into the church's officially recognized canon. But they're a little fun to look at from time to time. In some of these non-canonical stories, Jesus heals his childhood friends or playmates who fall ill or are injured. One who had actually fallen off a roof, I guess Jesus climbed up a roof as a child like a lot of little boys do, and the child's parent came out and accused Jesus of pushing him off the roof, so Jesus just raised the child from the dead in order to defend himself. I'm not kidding. You really can read these things. 
Jesus cures his own brother of snake bite, and he cures a friend of an injury to, inf- to a foot that is inflicted by the head of an axe when they were chopping wood together. At other times, Jesus punishes bad neighbors with miraculous deeds that sometimes leave them dead. But mostly the boy Jesus uses his miraculous powers to help his parents. On one occasion, his carpenter father had received an order to repair the bed of a wealthy townsman. When Joseph cuts the wood for the bed frame, one slat is significantly short. His precocious child Jesus stretches the slat to make it fit, saving his father disgrace. By comparison, the one story about the childhood of Jesus that we have in the Bible is pretty tame and undramatic. When Jesus is 12, he accompanies his parents and an entourage of friends and relatives from Nazareth to Jerusalem to celebrate the celebration of Passover, that festival in which the Jews give thanks for delivery from slavery, a festival that his parents celebrate in Jerusalem every year. A day into the journey home, the parents realized that Jesus is not with the cousins with whom they had assumed he was traveling. So they returned to Jerusalem panicked. They find Jesus in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. They scold him. He defends himself. Did you not understand that I must be in my father's house? They do not answer, but he returns with them to Nazareth, where he remains obedient to them. Now, I do not believe that I've ever preached this story before, but most of the times when I've thought about it or heard it discussed in the church, the focus of this story has almost always been on the parents. How could they let their son get lost? Why were they surprised that he was in the temple? Did he have to remind them of who he was and what his role and purpose was to be? In the 12 years since his birth, had they forgotten the miraculous circumstances of it? The angels and the shepherds, the blessing of Simeon and Anna? I suppose that if Mary and Joseph were alive today, they would be investigated as free-range parents. But what I want to focus on today is not the parents as much as what this story tells us about Jesus and by implication about us. The first thing this story says is that Jesus possessed a clear sense of his vocation. In Luke's Gospel... The first time Jesus speaks is in our story. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? The next time Jesus speaks in Luke's gospel is at the temptation story. It is written, he says, one does not live 
by bread alone. Jesus had a clear sense of his vocation. In in addition, Jesus' sense of vocation came to him at an early age. The text says he was 12 years old. We often speak in our culture of people being a natural-born politician, a gifted surgeon, a person who always knew what he or she wanted to be. While one sense of vocation is no less valid if it develops later in life, it is truly convenient, if not a blessing, when our sense of vocation comes early in life. As a child, I was always into sports. I would spend hours alone in the gym shooting baskets, practicing layups, seeing how many free throws I could make in a row. In the privacy of a gym, I even tried to teach myself how to dunk a basketball, a talent that at five foot nine inches eluded me by several inches. In my non-gym time, I had a protractor and a compass and a slide rule, and I would design baseball stadiums. But despite my love for sports, and perhaps in light of its diminishing promise for my life as I suddenly stopped growing, I also had the warmest feelings for the church. And as a child and a teenager, that is where I came to feel most at home. The warmth of the community, the singing at Wednesday night dinners, the work days on the church lawn, the hot chocolate on a cold morning at congregational retreats in the mountains, these became my primary draw and source of identity. When it came time for me to decide a vocation, it was not a difficult decision. It was simply affirming a pull that had existed most of my life. Coming into my sense of vocation early does not mean that my call to ministry is deeper or superior to others. It has not necessarily made me a better minister. It certainly doesn't mean that I'm any closer to God than people who find their vocation later in life. But it does mean that I was lucky, or to use the word of faith, blessed. Third, Jesus' sense of vocation was closely tied to his sense of his identity. I must be in my father's house, he says, to his earthly mother and his earthly father. Jesus' vocation as Christ, Messiah, matched his identity as Christ, Messiah. Through his work, he embodied who he was. While a lot of time has passed between his day and ours, and the nature of the economy, the culture, and family structure have evolved, our vocation, like his, still needs to match as closely as it can our identity. Our current culture makes much of separating our public and private lives, our work and family lives. 
And it stresses the importance to our health and to our families of keeping our work and private lives separate. These are wise and necessary emphases. I'm sure that you remember, I'm sure that some of you remember that after several years of battling cancer, Senator Paul Zonkas chose not to seek re-election. When he announced his decision, he said, No one ever on their deathbed said, I wish I had spent more time at the office. As important as the balance between work and personal life is, it is equally important that what we do follow as nearly as possible who we are. Our vocation is not intended to become our identity, but our vocation needs to reflect our identity. This is what we see in Jesus' case. Fourth, there is a subtle wisdom to the tension that Jesus experiences with his parents at this early age. Jesus' sense of identity is larger and greater than his loyalty to his family, his earthly family. Yet his identity flourishes within that loyalty. It is his family who present him at the temple for his circumcision and dedication. It is his family who take him with them every year to celebrate Passover. It is his family who provide for him the environment in which he can increase in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and humanity. Jesus' greater loyalty to God flourished within his loyalty to his family. And their loyalty to him doubtless helped his loyalty to God grow. On both accounts, this is as it should be. As much as the shape and form of family life has changed across cultures and across the centuries, as fewer the years and number of children in our culture are who are reared in families which at least at one point were considered normative, as the rate of marriage in our society continues to decline, and as sometimes selectively positive are some of the memories of what families used to be, the reality is that it is a lot simpler for children, for society, and for the development of faith when children are reared in a household in which there is sufficient nourishing and consistent love so that they may flourish. Such love doubtless marked the household in which Jesus was blessed to live. Such love did not guarantee but it created the circumstances for Jesus' flourishing. Finally, 
It is actually the case that Jesus' practice of his vocation, his coming into who he was to be, involved a period of waiting. Luke's chronology is subtly telling. Lost in the temple, quote, at 12 years old. Then a chapter later, Luke's statement, Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his work. Even for Jesus, there was a period of waiting, a period of 18 years, in an era in which 18 years was a significant portion of the life expectancy of a man or woman. For Jesus to begin his work at age 30 was not too many years away from when his normal life expectancy would have been over. We do not know what Jesus' waiting involved. We do not know whether it included a time of doubt and struggle, or prayer, or both. A time of faithful service to the traditions of the temple, and to his work as a carpenter. A time perhaps for caring for an ailing or disabled Joseph, who unlike Mary, never appears in the narrative of Jesus' later ministry. Nor do we know what finally prompted Jesus to hang up his carpenter's tools and present himself for baptism at the hands of John the Baptist. All we know is that there was a period of waiting, a lengthy period, and then it all came together. I once knew a man, a poet, who taught writing in one of the gifted and talented public high schools in New York City. He said that the hardest part of his job was dealing with parents who, quote, believed that their child was a guided missile headed for Harvard Yard and that, quote, the B minus I had given their child on a final was the only thing standing in the way of the intended target, end quote. Now, to be sure, it is a good thing when we are gifted and talented. And it's a good thing when we know where we're headed. And it might be a good thing if we have parents who think we're gifted and talented, although I'm not so sure. But it is also okay, acceptable, sometimes good, and sometimes even blessed if there's a period of waiting, even a lengthy period of waiting. In Jesus' case, there was a period of waiting, and it was blessed. May God bless us in our identity. May God bless us in our vocation. May God bless us in the homes in which they are formed. 
and may God bless us in our waiting. Amen.